0: pick up where we left off last time, which is our discussion about segmentation. We're talking about different types of segmentation, and we're going to continue. We're just going to review a couple of key points. So today we're talking about Chapter 9. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Chapter 10 and touch a bit about Chapter 11, but don't worry, next time we're going to get into... um, chapter 10 in more detail, and also chapter 11, but I just want you to see the the big picture of where we're going and how segmentation is so significant, segmentation and positioning, and then how that um, ties to products, and then how the products are related to brands. And one of the important takeaways is that the brand is what's wrapped around the product. That's what this visual here suggests, because (coughs) what did we say? That all products in a given category have the same functionality. So for example, cars all provide transportation. What makes one car unique from another is the fact that they're wrapped in different brands. And the brand is what differentiates one product from another and communicates the value. And a brand is a very complex, entity. Brands have personalities and identities and importantly, brands can accumulate equity. So we spend a lot of time talking about brand equity. We're gonna certainly um, talk about that in a lot more detail in chapter 11. Because, for example, the Coca-Cola brand has its estimated a value of about $68 billion, which is quite significant. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, almost $70 billion. Exactly. If it was like $68 million, then you might think, well, that's a lot too. But $68 billion, I mean, there's many companies that aren't even that big, right? So when I say $68 billion, that's not the assets of the entire company, that's just the value of their brand. That's why that's so compelling and why, like from day one, we started to talk a bit about branding and its importance. So uh, if you look at um, companies that are successful in the marketplace, they, accumulated a portfolio of powergrams but we'll, we'll talk more about that let's um, try to continue where we left off uh, regarding segmentation and I want us to just briefly recap who could tell me some of the key criteria for segmenting a market remember we said there are several things that we look at when we when we segment um, a market and we said there's also some criteria that we use when we're selecting particular segments so we're not going to try and penetrate all segments there are some that are more preferable than others but first let's talk about some of the criteria that we use in segmenting a market. Go ahead, tell me your name. Yeah, ben Kleidman. Okay Ben go ahead.
1: Uh, you want to identify a similar need?
0: Um, so segments in um, Segments that we identify, we want them to have the, the, the customers to have, or the potential customers, to have um, similar needs and wants, is what Ben is saying. Absolutely. So when we divide a market into sub-markets, or we aggregate um, potential customers into these groups or segments, certainly what Ben is saying is right on, is we want them to have similar needs and wants, and go ahead. Large. Absolutely. Large. Now remember I said last time, it doesn't mean that a small segment, which we refer to as a niche, it doesn't mean that um, we can't be successful with um, focusing on a niche, but more often than not, it's important to identify segments that are large. Um, reachable? Reachable, right. Reachable. And we talked a bit about that, what that means. in other words that we're able to access them through our marketing communications plan, which is very important. Age. Age. Okay, well age is um, a type of segmentation. right that's a type of demographic segmentation. It's not um, one of the requirements but I, I, I see what you're saying. We could certainly segment a market by age.
1: People who respond in a similar way to what you're marketing.
0: Right, so respond to the marketing mix in a similar way. So we have large, reachable, Ben says similar needs and wants, and responds to the marketing mix in a similar way. Now who could explain that? What does that mean? Response to the marketing mix in a similar way. What does that actually mean? Go ahead, tell that, us. That have the same type of behavior when
2: it comes to consuming the product? Like they Yes, that's certainly the same, part of it. Could be. They can pay the same prices or they buy online or go to the store.
0: Yeah, so at a certain price, um, a significant percentage well, of those in the target market would um, purchase the product. So price is certainly when we say marketing mix, price is one of the, the elements and that they're gonna respond in a similar way and also you suggested place, which means that they shop for the product in a similar um, channel of distribution. So last time we talked about the fact that, let's say um, a particular segment that we've identified, right, we identify it, this is very strategic, this is something that we have to leverage our critical thinking skills to be able to um, determine the segment People in this segment, our potential customers, might all shop online. That's important to us. That's important for us that we've identified a segment that has that type of purchase behavior, as you were suggesting, that they all shop online. Why is that? Like, why do we care? Like, why why don't we just look at all, like, the entire market, all men, so you say, why not? We're all men, we want to sell our product to all men. Why is that so crazy? Why does it matter that, um, that they all have similar needs and wants or that they um, respond to the marketing mix in a similar way?
2: So yeah. Chances are, from age 18 to 100, you're not going to have the same interests. Absolutely. Based, based on that, if you market an a Apple computer to a 98-year-old, he's not going to buy it.
0: Happy to market to that. To that I would location. think you're uh, you're right. I would yeah. As much as we're all fond of Apple um, branded products, yeah, it's l- unlikely that uh, we're gonna close that deal. Yes, go ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, pressure. Okay, uh, change yeah, your mind. Oh I, uh, I was saying, saying, yeah. oh. um, well, <laughs> saying when what, what you said that quote that you, that you said last time in class. Uh, that uh, we only target, we, we know that we're missing out, we only get 49% of the market, meaning that like we well, who we wanna target is the people that we know are gonna buy our products. That's why we wanna be as specific as possible in order to reach those people specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
0: we know that there might be some waste, but we wanna try and still be as efficient as possible. And if we have segments where they have similar needs and wants, um, and they respond to the marketing mix in a similar way, and the segment is um, large and reachable, well, that makes, marketing for us um, efficient. Now the thing is that we're still going to have multiple segments, but we're going to have to customize our marketing mix for each of those segments. And the more specific, um, the better. Just like remember I said, if we're selling a product and our target market is 18 to 25 year olds, well you don't want me to be in a commercial because that's not going to be a selling point. Oh yeah, I'm going to buy the product that Coach buys. No, you don't want to buy, you'd like to think, well, you know, the products that the professor uses are not products that I would use because I'm young and cool and hip and everybody likes me, right? So, you want to have uh, people in the commercial, for example, that the target audience can connect with, that they could relate with. Does that make sense? So we're going to identify multiple segments and then we're going to have to decide which segments we're going to focus on which is called targeting. So after we segment the market, after we divide the market into submarkets, then what we're going to do is focus on certain segments. Now why wouldn't we focus on all segments? What would be the what would be the challenge? Yes, go ahead. Absolutely. So, certain age groups, um, the product is not relevant, or certain, uh, let's say, certain religions, or certain ethnicities. Absolutely. So, really good point. All right. So, let's keep moving forward. We talked about geographic segmentation. So, that's dividing a market into submarkets based on a uh, region for example country city those are types of geographic segmentation we have to ask ourselves whether or not that's compelling or insightful enough because when we do that remember if we say for example if we segment the market um, geographically and we say region is one of the segments now certainly North America is a large region in terms of the number of people that live there in terms of the population, right hundreds of millions and South America, Latin America, um, Europe, etc cetera, etc. Cetera, what is the assumption that we're making? We're assuming that at what? What's well, the assumption, if we, if we take that approach, that those regions, that the people who live there all have similar needs and wants?
1: Awesome. That,
0: that's, a, that's a pretty big assumption. Now, in some cases, maybe that's the case. Most of the time, it's not. So we need to customize our marketing mix. And the same would apply by country, but I think when you get down to the country level, it's you might feel it's a little bit more reasonable to generalize at the country level. Let's take, for example, Asia. What countries comprise Asia? Japan China. So China, Japan, China,
1: Russia, Russia, Russia. Korea, Israel. Korea Israel. Central Asian countries. Israel, yeah, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan. No. <laughs>
0: So now now think about the countries that you just mentioned. Think about the, the cultural differences. Think about the cultural differences that we have here. So we, as, um, as marketers, we think of Asia as, like you said, China and Japan. And we think of um, the people who live there as Asians. But, you know, China and Japan they have a, um, a very interesting history that is very unpleasant. So to say that their needs and wants are similar is also a very broad generalization. Korea, also um, a very different um, cultural dynamic. Now, it doesn't mean that Asian countries like Japan, Korea, and China don't have some similarities um, in cultural um, ways, but there's also a lot of differences. So as marketers, we need to be sensitive to that. You follow what I'm saying? Right, so in in terms of uh, like this one size fits all, to think that, oh, we're just going to sell this product um, to all Asian countries and we don't need to customize it in any way. These are very different countries, very um, diverse and different from each other. Like, take for example, Japan has established a very significant presence in heavy manufacturing. So for quite a long time, for quite a long time, um, Japan has developed an expertise in manufacturing items like cars, for example. Right? That's what we mean by heavy manufacturing, whereas China tried in the past to become a heavy manufacturer, and they failed. They're revisiting that again now. So um, they are um, producing um, some cars. But really, they've demonstrated an expertise in what we call light manufacturing, which is generally what we refer to as labor intensive. So a lot of cut and sew operations, which means making all sorts of apparel, Handbags, things that require stitching, right? Cutting materials and stitching them together, and other labor-intensive processes. So very different countries and all aspects. That's what I'm trying to show you here is that they're different in a lot of ways, and that's why it's um, a, it's quite a generalization to say that well they're um, part of the same segment, part of the same geographic segmentation. That we would just apply the same marketing mix to those three countries, let's say. Not that we're excluding the others, but let's just say we're talking about Korea and Japan and China. So you might want to go down to from the region to the country level to the city level. Now you're at a level where I think you're m- more um, in a position to make some generalizations And you could say, well, people that live in a certain city, whether it's Guangzhou or um, Shanghai or Beijing, I think it would be more reasonable to draw some assumptions and make some generalizations about um, their lifestyle, um, their needs, and their wants. I think it would be more reasonable to say that there's um, similarities that we could identify. (coughs)
1: Couldn't someone argue that maybe um, a product which didn't need to be more specialized, more broken down for different segments. A product that is easier to sell to a large uh, geographic setting is maybe a better product sometimes. For example, iPhone. Maybe they market it differently, but it's the same iPhone all around. But even different water companies have to use different styles, different bottle types, different artsy patterns on their bottles to sell to different regions.
0: Well, that's all part of um, the marketing mix. So if we're changing the product or the packaging, or the, um, the amount of um, memory that's in the products, so or if it's uh, 2 gigabytes versus 4 gigabytes, or 6 gigabytes, or 8 gigabytes, then we're customizing the product. And if we are, um, for example, selling in a market where the level of disposable income is lower, and we're trying to sell products um, that provide the same functionality, right, that it might be a smartphone, In some markets we sell smartphones for $600 and some $500, in other markets maybe $100, but it has less storage capability, maybe it doesn't have the camera functionality, etc. So once you start to change all those aspects, you change the price, you change the, the, um, the elements of the product, then we're changing um, the, marketing me- need, the marketing mix to meet the needs of that particular market. So, yeah, I mean, and that's ideal to, that you've done that because more often than not, the needs are not similar based on region. Okay, so um, even those countries in the same region, they're not going to have similar needs and wants. Even within a particular city, there's some people that are very affluent, that they might have, they could afford to buy um, a model that's 600 and others maybe only $100. right? But well, those are just some examples. In some cases, it's relevant to segment the market geographically, and can be very insightful. And in other cases, it's not going to be the key to us successfully marketing our product.
1: Oh, doesn't that also tie into the concept of uh, social responsibility?
0: I would like to think it all ties into social responsibility and um, ethics. But tell, tell me uh, what you're thinking
1: specifically. No, because you're adjusting your product so it could meet the uh, consumer's uh,
0: financial needs. Otherwise, oh, well, yeah. If, yeah, oh, yeah I, I see what you're saying. In that case, like if we stick with the smartphone, um, if we believe that wireless communication is... An inalienable right that we feel strongly that everybody needs to have wireless communication or everybody should have internet access or everybody should have, we talked about, access to prescription medication and so forth. Sure, if that's, um, we might position it that way. That would be an interesting um, way to approach um, the market. Uh,
1: It doesn't really sound like social responsibility, it just seems like. the company wants to make the most money, they they give that as a product. That doesn't mean like a social responsibility. Well, I mean,
0: a company could sell a product at um, multiple price points, you're right, and it doesn't mean that they're doing something socially responsible. But I think what the way that um, you were suggesting it is that we would present the idea as that being our motivation, not just that we want to sell wireless communication at a hundred dollars, you're right, you're right. You could have a a good, better, best pricing strategy, which is very common. And that doesn't mean that you're engaged in social responsibility, but I think what he was suggesting is that, couldn't we sort of spin that and say that the reason we're doing that is because we believe that everybody should have access to wireless communication.
1: I'm saying that's a pretty far-fetched spin. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know.
0: It, it right time now, time. it sounds like a. a um, what if somebody really um, wants to do a good that? Actually, eyes, uh, right, plus yeah, plus right. I mean, it's a way yeah, to.
1: Somebody like
0: you know, it's do the, do the do way that um, we're, we're just Share sharing. Really we're, right. we're just suggesting that that's you know, our motive, right. so and maybe we could get that's some publicity. I have
1: that feeling of social responsibility, and I'm owner of the right. company. I can do that. And market it that way. There's nothing, and you have no marketing like that. There's nothing. What if I have such a big business? I'm not losing anything. One is that you can do it. If
0: you yeah, I mean, companies do that now. I and mean, what what are some of the examples of where companies um, promote their activities as being something that's socially responsible? Like, take for example Starbucks, and you know, um, this idea of um, companies supporting free trade, and also um, they have um, what's their they have a um, a, a lot of water. <coughs> And so what, they're just selling water, but no, they really, what are they saying? They say that they believe that everybody in the world should have access to fresh water. Because believe it or not, there's um, quite a few people around the world that don't have access to fresh water. We take it for granted. In the United States, you go to the water fountain and so forth, in our, in our house, and in our apartment, but that's not the case around the world but aren't they just, they're just selling bottled water, but they position it as, no, well, this is, we're sell the reason we're selling water is because we believe that everybody should have access to fresh water. Isn't that the way that they position? Or some companies say, if you buy our product, um, you know, every product that we sell, we donate a dollar to a certain cause, but aren't you really just selling laptops? What, is, what does that have to do with every laptop you sell, you donate $10 to breast cancer? So what's the real reason that you're selling laptops? To raise money for breast cancer or to sell laptops, which is what you're saying, right? Like, you're selling laptops. What, what, are, you, uh, you know, what are you kidding me? What does that have to do? Why is that something socially responsible? Just because you decide you're going to give money to this worthwhile cause. Does that mean it's something that's socially responsible? But I don't want to digress too much on there because we need to talk about segmentation. We could talk about that after class. But you, you raise an interesting point. We talked about demographic segmentation, which we talked about examples of age. Gender we talked about gender, race. race, ethnicity, income level, occupation, um, level of education, Those are all good examples of demographic segmentation. And the reason why it's so compelling, the reason why we even talk about that as an example, is because in many cases it is insightful that people in a certain age group, or in a gender, or a certain income level, that they do have similar needs and wants. That they do respond to the marketing mix in a similar way. That these segments are large and reachable. And by the way, it doesn't mean everybody in that segment, right? Don't get hung up on that. Well, what do you, you know, it doesn't have to be everybody, just that a significant percentage of the segment is going to respond in a similar way to the marketing mix. We talk about psychographics, which has to do with lifestyles, interests, hobbies, opinions, attitudes. That's what we mean when we talk about psychographics. And we talked last time, then we talked last time about different life stages. How people in different life stages have similar needs and wants and respond in a similar way to the marketing mix. So for example, if you're single, if you're married, if you're married with kids, if um, you're an empty nester. So it's plausible, we have to decide what's gonna be most relevant for our particular product or service. But certainly you could see how that's insightful. right? Is that plausible? We think, well, yeah, people that are married and have kids, they probably do. They have some commonality. That seems plausible. But again, depends on our product or service. And then where we left off really was we started to talk about behavioral segmentation. And we started to talk about usage rate So an example of behavioral segmentation is usage rate. So how much of the product do we consume? So for example, are we light users, so do we use the product infrequently? Are we moderate users of the product or heavy users? Why is that insightful? Why do you think that heavy users might have something in common and have similar needs and wants, and the same being true of the other segments? Because what we're doing is we're aggregating potential customers or existing customers into these groups. And we're saying, we know that there's customers that don't use our product frequently. Like let's say it's peanut butter. And there's some that, while they only buy peanut butter once a month, there's some that buy peanut butter once a week. Those would be the moderate users. And there's some that are heavy users that buy peanut butter not once a week, but three times a week. So how is that insightful to us? Why would would we care? Whether it's peanut butter or milk, so somebody buys, they're a light user, they buy one gallon of milk a day, a month. Moderate users, they buy one gallon of milk a week. And heavy users, they buy a gallon of milk every other day. How does that help us? Tell us, what what do you think about that?
2: Because we would spend more of our our marketing budget on the heavy users as opposed to the light, light users, to to advertise the heavy users.
0: We we might do that. Um, that why important? would we do that though? I, I'm I'm not. We, I I I agree. Harder, we need right, to right. spend money. No no. I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you. I just want to let's talk talk this talk it through. Why? Um, tell us. Share with us. I agree, we should spend money um, advertising to heavy users. What is the benefit of doing that? What's the benefit of advertising to the heavy users?
2: So you continue. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So don't make the mistake. You know, you raise a really good point. Um, you
2: keep relationships.
0: Yeah, we've, we've developed there. Apparently, they are heavy users of the product. We need to sustain that. We need to make sure that they don't have what's called buyer's remorse. So if they're heavy users, we don't want them to experience buyer's remorse or what sometimes is called post-cognitive dissonance, which means that after they buy the product that they're double-guessing themselves. We need to manage that part of the process. So absolutely. We need to reinforce, yes, you made the right decision. You bought milk instead of orange juice, right? So you need to continue to reach out to them and get them ideally to, through a different, a variety of different um, approaches, certainly advertising is one of them, to get them to continue to buy milk. So excellent. So what about the others? So we're going to spend some money to advertise to those that are already heavy users
1: buy milk all the time? Well, not only advertising, the product, I think we can like modify it. Like, it's actually for most, for all categories. Like for example, peanut butter mixed with gen or like milk, all kinds of milk, like zero fat, low fat. Because for long time users, they can get bored, or like there can be health, whatever, like things that may prevent people from using, so we make like low fat meals. Or whatever, and for those who are not so, to get them to be more heavy, we can like do different varieties and like to get them more involved in that.
0: Yeah, so we could augment the product as you're suggesting, um, and also add different features and flavors. We need to, yeah, absolutely, different flavors because cool. the light users. The thing about the light users is that we need to understand why is their consumption of milk so low. Now, see, these are the things when you do research. You need to probe and keep asking and questioning to try and understand the purchase motivation or maybe the lack of purchase motivation. So we need to keep, continue um, to ask the right questions. And I think you raised a good point. Alexi raises a good point that maybe the reason they're light users of milk is because they perceive milk as being high in fat or cholesterol. So if we come out with another version that we market as um, low fat or m- more um, healthy, Calcium. then we're gonna be able to attract those non-users. So we, you know, the different prospective buying groups, we have users, we have non-users, for example. So you're right, there's some non-users or some light users. Because we need to address that. We need to find out why it is that they're a light user. The same thing with, with orange juice, the other side of it. Is that, well, they say, well, why don't you drink orange juice? Well, because I, my doctor said I really need to get a lot of calcium in my diet. And I need to, you know, vitamin A and D is important to me. So that's going to address that issue. We have to overcome those issues and concerns and those reasons that people aren't buying or using our product. So this is definitely very insightful. And also to your point, we're gonna certainly spend money on heavy users because we need to keep them as our customers.
1: But at the same time, they're really heavy
0: users, so like... Well, it's easier to retain the customers that we have than it is to attract new customers.
1: But easier meaning that we have to spend less effort for that.
0: Right, so even more so that we should do that, because these people have already used our product and like it. They've already seen our print ads. They've already seen our commercials. So we need to stay top of mind. We just need to reinforce that. So our advertising objective is to build and grow the level of awareness whether it's the brand awareness, or continue to support and enhance category need, or what sometimes we call primary demand. That's what the Got Milk campaign is all about, is to create primary demand for not a specific brand, but for a particular product type, which in this case is milk, or the same is true for um, beef. It's what's for dinner. Right? All of those are um, campaigns that are designed to create category need.
2: The light users know what your, um, they, know, they, know, they know your product already and yet they're still only, they're still light users, so what would be the point then?
0: Well, we don't know. We don't know the reason. Um, maybe it is a lack of a, awareness. Um, Maybe they don't know the the features and benefits. Maybe the reason they don't drink orange juice is because they don't know that orange juice is high in calcium and vitamin A and D. So that's what we need to understand. In some cases, the light users, um, that's their situation. In other cases, they don't because maybe um, the orange juice is too acidic and it um, wreaks havoc on their stomach. So we, don't, we don't know what the reason is, maybe it's right. too expensive, Who, I, you know?
2: So in that case, advertising wouldn't, wouldn't really do anything, only if, right, if it's too expensive or if it's too safe only if we
0: change the product. Right, if we change the product, and we could use advertising to communicate to them that orange juice is high in calcium, or orange juice is high in vitamin A and D. So get the light users to become moderate users or heavy users. So this is very insightful. Once you understand that there's some commonality amongst each of these individual segments, that they have similar needs and wants. But each case is going to be different. We need to understand why they're light users. Why are they not purchasing milk or orange
1: juice or (coughs) peanut butter? So you're spoken about both focusing on the heavy users and the light users, but what about the moderate users? Do you want to try to get them to buy more? Or...
0: Yeah, absolutely. What we want to do is for all of these is increase the usage rate. That's our objective: is to increase the usage rate. So even if they're already heavy users, if they buy milk twice a week. Why can't we get? How do we get them to buy milk three times a week? How do we get them to buy milk four times a week? Or if they just don't need it. They might not, but what we need to challenge ourselves to find out, how do we increase usage, how do we increase consumption of our product or service?
1: We don't want to spend the most money possible on the light user. I mean, that. come up with a new slogan or something. Maybe well, it depends.
0: Like you're suggesting, it really depends on the reason why they're not purchasing. Like you suggested, well, if it's really that the juice is not in agreement with their stomach lining, then no matter how much we advertise, they're just not going to drink it. Like, who's going to drink that if it's going to, you know, give you pains in your stomach? But you need to understand. Now, in some cases, that might be maybe only 10% of the light users. Maybe the others, um, there's other issues, there's other reasons. Maybe the substitute product is less expensive. So why couldn't we have, if we are, marketers of orange juice, why can't we have a good, better, best pricing strategy where we have a premium brand of orange juice and then we have um, a less expensive brand or an economy brand that light users will find affordable. So it's interesting, isn't it, to see that um, there is a different level of consumption by different customers. And importantly, the key takeaway is that after identifying this and understanding it is that as marketers, we can influence this. Certainly that's what we're gonna try to do. Like you guys are pointing out is that, yes, they're light users. How do we get them to become moderate users? And the moderate users, what is it? We need to understand why they're moderate users and not heavy users? How do we increase their consumption and usage of our product? Wouldn't it be another category called non-users? Like Yes, well, yeah, light or non-users, yeah. Okay, like people who doesn't consume at all. Absolutely, so a non-user would definitely be one of the um, prospective buying groups, a- absolutely. So, these are actually the way we're looking at it here as <clears throat> if we go up to this level, we're looking at users, which is what you're saying, and then the other group is non users, which is a good point. So, within users, we have light, moderate, and heavy, and then we have another segment which is the non users. Yeah, absolutely. And with the non users, also, we need to ask that question why? We really need to know why. And sometimes, very often, not just sometimes, you'll be surprised what consumers will tell you in research. Because it's not what we think or what we use. There might be some similarities for certain products. And other products, there could be differences. So, for example, um, the food. There's definitely very different um, food and delicacies that are preferred by Caribbean-Americans and not so much African-Americans. But there could be other products where um, the needs and wants are similar, like, for example, hair care. And I know you would like to think, what does this guy know about hair care? But I know, I know a couple of things. <clears throat> I know what shampoo is. I know you're thinking, shampoo, do you follow what I'm saying? You see, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got it now, he got it, he just got it, okay,
1: <laughs> go ahead. Um, how would you appeal to a variety of people, right, let's say you want to sell a product that anyone can use, and it's applicable to anyone's life over the age of 18 and below the age of retirement. How do you appeal to anyone like that, because you're talking about every single, every single sub-segment or subdivision of everything.
0: And so what you need to do is, communicate to each group with a different uh, marketing communications plan.
1: So this idea
0: of like one size fits all, I don't recommend that. So (coughs) I know what you're trying to say. How do we sell to all religions, all age groups, all ethnicities? It's challenging um, to do that, because whatever it is that you do, There's going to be some groups that are going to connect better with the commercial and our product and service than others. Even if you use animation. Like, look at what Geico has done. So they said, you know what? We're not going to show um, a Hispanic. We're not going to show an Asian. We're going to show a gecko. Right? (laughs) Or a caveman. And we're not going to tell anybody his... Um, religious beliefs, right? Or associations, right? Leave that to your imagination. We're not saying he's an atheist. We're not saying that the gecko is Jewish or Christian, but that's something that's TMI, too much information. We're not going to share that. But then you say, oh, well, coach, that's, yeah, why not? That sounds like a good idea. We'll use the gecko, and wouldn't everybody relate to that? But what about humor, What everybody considers to be humorous is going to vary from culture to culture. Maybe in some cultures they find that very amusing and other cultures not. Maybe in some cultures they find that offensive. Gecko. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they think that they're mocking the gecko and that's maybe somebody's um, pet. They're they're offended by that. So... um, you have to think about that um, carefully, but I think that's a good example of where they're trying to sell car insurance. But you know what, importantly, think about this, they're trying to sell car insurance, but not to everybody. Why? Why would I say not to everybody? Those who have cars. Exactly. So now what about you run this ad, like they do, and please don't tell me um, that a big company did it that makes it right, because big companies <laughs> make big mistakes. But certainly they advertise on television. But like Alexi is saying, well, everybody doesn't own a car. So what about all those people that are being exposed to that television commercial who don't own a car and don't need, they don't have a need for car insurance? That's waste. That's what the president of Procter & Gamble was saying. I know, I'm, but what could I do? Alexi owns a car and Shlomo does it. I, that's, what could I do? They're both watching the show at the same time, the same day of the week. So it happens. What we want to do is try and minimize the waste. So we talked about demographic segmentation, age, gender, race, religion, let's talk about geographic segmentation <coughs> so geographic segmentation could be based on region so the idea is that we believe that people who live in a certain region <coughs> have similar needs and wants and are going to respond to the marketing mix in a similar way are reachable and the segments are large
1: but don't you think we're also going to go here like Cultural wise, like because it's geographically different parts of world and countries, it's also cultures, different cultures. So like how does the cultural differences fit in there? It in terms of regional? Yeah, like well, like geographic uh, segmentation would also be cultural segmentation
0: in terms of Oh so absolutely. So maybe this is not relevant for the particular product or service that we want to sell. So you guys got what Alexi is saying. You're saying, well, in North America, we have the United States, Canada, <clears throat> and Mexico.
2: Good.
0: What was that? No. <laughs> does, does that make sense for the product or service that we want to sell? Maybe what Alexi is saying is, you know that in Mexico, right? the culture is very different than, let's say, in Canada or in parts of the United States, although there's a lot of Spanish-speaking um, people in the United States, the language you speak does not always indicate a common culture, because people who speak Spanish all over the world, and the cultures are very different. And also the Spanish, the dialect of Spanish, is very different. So Alexei brings a good point. So maybe this is not appropriate for our product. North America, South America, Latin America, etc. Or if we look at let's say um, Asia, for example. So we have Korea, Japan, China, just for example. Wow, but I mean, yes, they're Asian, but certainly there's vast differences in the culture there, in each of those countries. So maybe this is not the best um, segmentation. Maybe we need to look at, instead of at the region level, maybe if we're focusing on that region of the world, then maybe we take it to the next level and we focus on specific countries. China, which has 1.3 billion people, India, which also has about a billion people. Japan, Korea. And by the way, what I just did, you see what I just did here? By quantifying the population, that's right. referred to as market sizing. right? What I just did is quantify the size of the market by saying that 1.3 billion people live there. It could be in dollars. It could be per capita income. It could be the number of people. But we want to know, once we segmented the market, the size of
1: each segment. Do we prioritize because of that?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that we're going to look at after we've identified these segments is which ones are the largest, which have the greatest level of expected growth? We're going to look at the concentration. Okay. concentration of the market, so the size, the growth rate. Remember we talked about the Boston Consultant Group model? Remember? We talked about portfolio analysis, and we talked about the stars, the cash cows, the dogs, not to be confused with dinosaurs, and the question marks, right? So the size of the market is important, the rate of growth. The concentration of the market. So, in other words, what percentage of the market is controlled by, let's say, five competitors? So, in other words, is the market highly concentrated or is it highly fragmented? So, a market that's highly concentrated, for example, is wireless communication in the United States. So, basically, in the United States, What do we have? Like four companies that control literally about what? 90% of the wireless communication in the United States. The largest is AT&T, then Verizon, then Sprint, and T-Mobile. Right? Aren't those the four largest competitors? So that's very different from a market in which you have A hundred competitors make up 90% of the market. If a hundred competitors make up 90% of the market, then what? That's highly fragmented versus highly concentrated. That's going to have an impact on how we view the level of market attractiveness. (laughs) So we need to take that into consideration. Also, Michael Porter has a model, a market attractiveness model known as five forces. And the five forces model looks at some other aspects, such as the level of rivalry. So the level of rivalry is an indication of how attractive the market is. So if the level of of, uh, rivalry is very high, then the market is less attractive. Threat of substitutes. If the threat of substitutes is high, then the market attractiveness is low. So for example, if we sell milk in a particular market, then what would we <clears throat> what would we be concerned about? Other
1: milk sellers?
0: And, and orange juice. juice. Orange juice, right? That's an example of a threat of a substitute that people might drink milk produced by other farmers, other dairies, other branded milk products, but also a substitute would be juice or maybe soft drinks or maybe water. It depends. That's something that we need to understand from a consumer behavior perspective. In in a given market... There's no right or wrong answer. It's only what consumers say is if there was no milk, I would drink orange juice or I would drink soda. Isn't
1: there another way around that, like what PepsiCo does in that they own milk company and the orange juice company?
0: So um, a company like Pepsi and Coke, they operate in multiple segments in the beverage category. So absolutely. Pepsi owns a variety of soft drinks, right? They have a portfolio of soft drink brands including Pepsi, Sierra Mist, what else is theirs? Power is orange,
1: orange. 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 crumbs. Data. No, the crum. Gator, um, they don't Starbucks brand.
0: So Pepsi and is the Cola brand, Sierra Mist is the lemon lime and, yeah. crush,
1: and crush.
0: Oh, crush, so they have an orange um, flavored soft drink, but to your point, they also own Aquafina, which is a brand of water, mm-hmm. and what about um, juice, do they own a juice company?
1: Minute
0: Ma- Well Minute, Minute Maid, I think it's Coca-Cola. Yeah. I think they
1: might own Tropical.
0: Yeah, they might. I think they finally did um, acquire um, mm-hmm. Tropicana, didn't they?
1: Pepsi. I mean, PepsiCo. Yeah, Tropicana owns yeah. all owns those Tropicana. drinks: Frito Lay, Tropicana, Quaker, and Gatorade. Gatorade. Tropicana is from yeah. Yeah. And Frito Lay is like all those chips. Tropicana is every juice. Quakers.
0: Right. Meat. So, but I think um, Coke had taken the lead in with its Minute Maid brand um, for a long time, and then. Pepsi emulated them and realized that it was relevant in terms of the way they were viewing, the way they segmented the beverage category, that owning a juice company, an orange juice company, um, it's made strategic sense to them. But both of them are very adamant that they don't want to sell alcohol. Now in the U.S., 60% of the dollar sales in the beverage category are alcohol. So in the U.S., the beverage category each year is about two hundred dollars, two hundred billion dollars at retail each year. A hundred and twenty billion dollars is sold as alcohol, and the other eighty billion
1: is soft drinks, water, juice, teas. It's quite interesting to know that by Coke divers or Pepsi diversifying, including the milk and the orange juice company per se. They're not competing with themselves, but they're competing with now Coke. And since everyone is now diversified, they're all just competing with each other rather than within the different categories.
0: Yes, it's very interesting to think about who are your direct competitors and who are your indirect competitors. And they might be competing within Coke. the organization with themselves. Now, why would you do that? Because... If you now own an orange juice company, and you are known for selling soft drinks, and that could be what people perceive as being a substitute, then maybe your Pepsi sales are going to go down. But the logic is that if we don't cannibalize, because remember, anytime we introduce a new product, we want to achieve incremental sales. We want to have incremental revenue. We don't want to just replace sales. But in this case, we're not talking about incremental revenue. We're talking about just the opposite, which is cannibalizing our sales. That means, for example, we might sell less Pepsi and sell more orange juice. And the reason is because if we don't cannibalize our own sales, somebody else will. There is a cost of doing nothing. Don't think that doing nothing is the safe decision. It's not. So just because you say, you know what, I'm not going to acquire an orange juice company because that's going to cannibalize the sales of my soft drink business. Well, that doesn't prevent orange juice from cannibalizing the sales of your soft drink business
1: but they're also just reaching a whole other market also. People just drink orange juice and not soft drinks, so it could be profitable not taking away from the other sales. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a
0: good idea um, in terms of um, expanding their business. <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah, I think it makes um, a lot of sense. You know, like they say, if you can't beat them, join them. So if you know that one of the substitutes is orange juice, so then why not also sell orange juice? You don't want to have this... Remember we, the first thing we talked about the difference between a marketing orientation and a production orientation? Production orientation means that we make... What? We try to sell what we could make. Whereas the marketing orientation is we make what we could sell. Remember we talked about that distinction? We said the marketing orientation is focused on making what we could sell. So it's not just because we have a soft drink... Bottling capability that we're just going to produce soft drinks and just try to sell as much of that as we can. <laughs> That's a production orientation. The marketing orientation says we're going to find out what customers want. And what we found out, and what without even doing uh, in depth analysis, just walk into any grocery store, you'll see that there's a need for different types of beverages soft drinks, juice, water tea, etc. You said PepsiCo is
2: adamant
0: on not going to the alcohol industry, Why? why is that? Focus. At one time, diversification, now there's two types of diversification, related diversification and unrelated diversification. So if you're a soft drink company and you acquire a tea, a bottled tea business or orange juice, that's considered to be a related diversification. Now, what companies did in the 70s, which was considered to be very common, were any of you born? Were, you, were any of you alive in the 70s? I don't even think so. All right, maybe that was a bad example. But anyway, in the 70s, right, which was like at the dawn of time, basically, right, in the 70s, companies were focused on unrelated diversification. So you would have, for example, cigarette companies buying food manufacturers.
1: Philip Morris.
0: Exactly. So R.J. Reynolds and um, Philip Morris. That's pretty bizarre. What what did you think? You have retailers. Remember we talked about Sears. That they acquired an insurance company, Allstate. They acquired a brokerage firm, Dean Witter. And (laughs) Discover Financial Services. What does that... I mean, you're a retailer. And at that time... <clears> or <throat> just prior to that, they were the nation's largest retailer. What do you? What what business do you have owning a, uh, an insurance company? Your stock and trade is retail. But that was very common. Um, news companies owning theme parks and um, alcohol companies and so forth. <clears throat> but there's some advantages to being diversified that way, and there's also some disadvantages, and the biggest disadvantages, or one of the biggest disadvantages is lack of focus. It's this idea that you can't be a jack-of-all-trades. If you're a retailer, be the best at retailer. But You can't be a retailer, right? It's very challenging to be an effective retailer, to be an effective merchant, and also run an insurance company and a brokerage firm and a credit card business. Or like some of these other companies, maybe there's a lot of examples of these conglomerates that were formed. Companies that own, um, like General Electric, for example, Still, today is a very large um, conglomerate and has a very diverse holdings. They've been very successful. It doesn't mean that some companies can't be successful um, with diverse holdings, but the reward on Wall Street, if you will, is on companies that are focused. And they believe the more focused, the more profitable the company is gonna be. So the paradigms shift, but that's um, the way the market is today. Alright, so we talked about demographic, we talked about geographic, and what else? What else did I mention? Psychographic. Psychographic is about lifestyle, lifestyle and personality. So when we segment the market by lifestyle, that means that we believe that a certain lifestyle has similar needs and wants, and that they're going to respond to the marketing mix in a similar way. Like, for example, what? What would be an example of um, a lifestyle? Somebody mentioned before, they said, what about if you're, um, you're pregnant? did one of you guys ask that? Do I look like I'm pregnant? People always ask, ask me, me, when is the baby coming? And also they said that, well, you know, um, if things don't work out for you, you know, Christmas is coming. They're always looking for Santa Claus on 34th Street. So keep your options open. But um, I told them, I said, I could never do that. Santa Claus had hair, right? Lots of it. So in terms of lifestyle, there's golf. Yeah, golf is certainly... Um, different types of uh, sports, but also your life stage. So, for example, married with kids. So, like, life stage would be single, married, married with kids, and then we have what's (coughs) called empty nester? What does that mean, empty nester? Right, when you finally get the kids out of the house, right? So what this says is that people who are single, right, Now we're talking about lifestyle, people that are single have similar needs and wants and they're gonna behave to the marketing mix in a similar way. Is that everybody who's single? No, it's not. But remember, we're looking for ways to segment the market that are going to help us to operate efficiently and to be profitable and maximize our sales. So maybe this is not the best way to segment the market for our product and service. Married, same assumption. Married with kids, empty nesters. So those are different life stages. Go ahead. So like Gerber...
1: Um, they sell life insurance, but they sell babies' life insurance. Mm-hmm. So is that them segmenting the market away from another baby food company where they're just selling baby food with Gerber, you are getting your baby food and you know getting you know your kidneys insurance.
0: Well, I think what I'm hearing you say is that what they did is, they identified the market as life insurance. Right, I know Gerber is the one that sells the insurance, um, but what I'm saying is that they segmented the market, the life insurance market, and they said that there's different segments. There's babies who need insurance, there's teenagers that need insurance, and then adults within different age groups that are gonna need insurance. So I think um, the way they're looking at the market is smart because they took this huge market, life insurance, and they said, this is the way we're gonna break down the market and we're gonna target, right? When we're we're targeting, what we're doing is selecting a segment or multiple segments, we're gonna focus on this on this segment. The segment for life insurance for babies. Yeah, I, I think that's compelling. Now whether or not they decide to target these other segments is you know, a different um, business model, but I think that them focusing on this segment is also relevant to <clears throat> their brand. So in other words, When we brand a product or service, (coughs) we have to think about whether or not it's logical to brand that product or service with that particular brand. So we have to look at the brand elasticity. How far could we stretch our brand? Now Gerber, as you were suggesting, is a very well-known marketer (coughs) of baby food. So Gerber, for most people, means baby. So you could extend their brand, the Gerber brand, into a lot of different categories that relate to babies. Baby food, baby insurance, I think um, a lot of other categories. But maybe Gerber jet skis. Maybe that doesn't, <laughs> there's not a logical connection there. So I think this is really smart. Because they realize that their brand can be extended into life insurance, but it's very relevant specifically to life insurance for babies. Yeah, I, I think it's very smart what they did. I think what Berber's
2: doing, they also have a college uh, fund type of thing yeah. that they set up uh, from when they're babies. This way, by the time they're teenagers like us, I guess, or, or 21 or whatever. Uh, oh, so know, you were just saying if you have
0: teenagers and I'm 21? Is that
2: No, no I'm 21. But, like, oh, okay. like in, in general,
0: <laughs> whatever,
2: you know what I mean. So, like, the, in general, like, the average teenager, I mean, college life is 18 to 22, I'd say. And so, from day one, they're basically targeting each group. Meaning, baby, babies, or baby food, teenagers for college, and adults to pay for. I guess the college and the baby food, and their marketing pitch would most probably be towards those adults at the current moment, just based on who's paying for the thing, the product, and who's like raising the their loved one, I guess, their Mm -hmm. kid. So,
0: (laughs) and so, tell me more about the. the tuition, the uh, the program that um, that they created, they're contributing towards the scholarship.
2: Yeah, from what I, I mean, from what I, know, all I really know is from the commercials that they say, like they have this whole like family discussion and saying how like I already started the college fund and like they just like put diapers on the baby basically. So like that, that's the type of, type of thing. Like I'm assume, from what I assume, they're putting Gerber puts a percentage of their whatever that person buys into the college fund, or actually whatever their profits are, and then percentage goes into whoever signed up for their college fund program.
0: And so what did we um, say that would classify as, last class we talked about this, what is that? Why, why are they doing that? What are they trying to? Social responsibility. Right, <laughs> corporate social responsibility. That's a, that's a good example. Yeah. Right. Basically they're giving money to a scholarship or some sort of charity, that's a good example of corporate and social responsibility.
1: That's that's the reason why they're it's a doing that. Payment. What is it? It's a monthly payment. How does tell us you found it? What is yeah. it? What is it? Um, it's a monthly payment that fits your budget, whatever it is. It's so a, does the company is put money into the so fund? No, no, you. No. Do, the customer does. You decide when you want your money between ten and twenty years. You receive a guaranteed payment of ten to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Uh, of 10 grand to 150 grand when your policy reaches maturity. Um, Wow, so they really are
0: getting into financial
1: services, that's interesting. So they basically are selling annuities. If they they had to stop making baby food, right, they'd have no more source of income. And they have this life insurance plan. And the life insurance plan needs to be backed by some capital. So the only way to guarantee that they'll have that capital to pay that plan is the babies that stay alive for 18 years, get go to, to college, college. Yeah. and they swallow all the life insurance money that they don't need to pay out, and that goes to the college fund. No pun intended, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, so
0: it's a good example. Um, maybe we'll have a chance to revisit that in another class. It sounds like um, an interesting um, company to study. Before we go, I just want to touch upon this. I don't want to rush it, but just to give you a, um, some insight, and we'll talk about this again next class, about behavioral segmentation, which has to do with usage rate, and another example is product benefit. So let me just tell you this quickly, and then we'll we'll start with this next time, but in terms of usage rate, we have heavy users, moderate, and light. And we'll also talk about um, product benefit and how that's a significant way to segment the market. So a good example would be toothpaste, for example. What they do is they segment the market by the benefit that the customer wants. So for example, Some customers buy toothpaste because it fights cavities. Others, white teeth. Others, fresh breath. Others, um, fights plaque, etc. All of those are compelling ways to segment the market. All right, before you go, what I want to do is give you this sheet, which is a review of Chapter 1.